Welcome to the Global Marketing Show, the podcast for all things international business. I'm your host, Wendy Pease, president of Rapport International and a translation expert. Come along with me today as we talk to an expert in the global marketing world about facing their biggest fears, hearing about mistakes they made or saw, discussing best practices, and sharing fun travel language and culture story. Welcome, everybody, to this week's episode of the Global Marketing Podcast. And today we welcome Jamie Doragi, who founded Artisan Creative, but he's no longer day-to-day running that anymore. He's now an executive coach and team facilitator, and he's got a special emphasis on Strength Finder, but he's got all sorts of qualifications and experience. Um, He is also the Global Leadership Committee Chair for EO, which is Entrepreneurs Organization. And so we had the opportunity to meet through that. So we're going to get into some of that, about some of that global organization and what he does. Uh, So Jamie, welcome so much for being here. Thank you you for being here. (laughs) Thank you for the invitation. It's always great to be able to share stories and ideas with fellow entrepreneurs. I know, and you have so much to you that that my I was kind of stumbling on the introduction because I was like, which way do I want to go first? But I, I think we're going to start off with your um, personal interest with fencing because that's taken you around the world. So tell me a little bit more about how you got into fencing. Definitely. I was introduced to fencing at the age of 17. It was offered at my school and I... I'm still very passionate about team sports. I do that a lot. And fencing, I found, was just something that was personal. Uh, Not being highly creative nor musical, I found fencing as the way that I could express myself uh, through an individual sport. And having lived in different countries and different uh, cities around the world and in the U.S., my port of entry, if you will, was always the fencing club. When I didn't know anybody into a new city, I always knew that I had a home and a community uh, within the sport of fencing. Oh my gosh, that's fantastic. So you could land anywhere and have immediate place to go and meet like-minded people. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. And the fencers I know are usually well-educated, very interesting people. (laughs) I've learned that fencers generally have a very broad range of interests and it allows active minds to give something specific to focus on. Where in the world have you lived and um, been introduced to people in fencing? I lived in, I've lived, I was born in the States. I lived in Iran, England, France, Switzerland for a bit, and then finally back in the States where I've been since probably my early 20s. And those where I actually lived for an extended period of time were in those other countries. Oh, okay. And so did you, were you a child when you lived in those places or? Uh, yes, as a child. Yes, I went to Iran as a child with my parents uh, at uh-huh. the age of 14, which is probably where a lot of people start to get a little difficult as teenagers. Uh, <laughs> yeah. My parents packed me off to boarding school in England. Uh, that's where I did learn defense and then France for a couple of years and Switzerland in between that as well. And okay. We and so then you came back to the United States and continued to fence after you had learned it in boarding school. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. Okay. And, and now- A little bit in college. A little, okay. And then did you, have you, when you travel around the world for business, have you done fencing? 
I try to tr take my equipment when I can with me. It's not easy because it's kind of bulky and yes. unwieldy, if you will. Not always the easiest things to get through customs as well. Uh, what I have done through fencing, though, is I have been able to travel the world through fencing and specifically for competitions that have brought me to Russia, to Cuba, uh, Bulgaria, Canada, just although even to Hawaii. I've gone to a tournament defense in Hawaii. Uh, so it's really allowed me to see the world through the focus on that sport. Oh, that's fantastic. And this has all been as an adult. Yeah, all, all as an adult. Actually, yes, I competed at the World Championships in 2019, and they were in Cairo, Egypt, the Veteran World Championships. Wow, fantastic. I'd love to go see that. Huh. All right, so you also mentioned that at 14, you moved from the U.S. to Iran. Tell oh, actually, me. At, two, at two, I moved from the U.S. to Iran, and then at 14, I went to England. So my formative years were in Iran from the age of two to 14. Oh, okay. And so, and then you went to the UK, you lived in France and Switzerland and the US. Oh my gosh, this is, the, you've had such a, a fascinating upbringing. Talk to me about the different cultures and how you land and navigate among them. What I, what I found for me is the importance of at least trying to learn the, another language. And because and, language opens doors that are otherwise closed. And food is a great way, because we all share that. And if we can share food, then we can share language and culture as well. So I try my best to, to learn about the food, to learn about the culture, and get some elements of the language as well to help uh, open up conversation. What kind of elements of the language would you try to learn? Usually the open ones are the gratitude and talk about the food and sort of what is, you know, how do you express gratitude? How do you say thank you? Welcoming, ones that sort of open up uh, the warmth that each culture has to offer. And being naturally curious about how the food is prepared. What, what does that bring to them when they serve these kind, when we serve different dishes to each other? We're sharing of our culture when we share our dishes. Oh, that's fantastic. I love the whole gratitude way because I did have a discussion with somebody on an earlier podcast and we list that, listed out the words that are helpful to know. And I've talked with other people about gratitude and how important that is too. So you just, you just brought them together of words of gratitude really are going to make you more welcome and spread the warmth. Yeah. Absolutely. Okay, so gratitude and words and then goes into food. So tell me about a good food experience you've had that might have been unusual to our listeners. I guess uh, part of that is uh, I love Iranian food or Persian food. It's, it's heavily based on a very aromatic rice. And then that's served with a complimentary, what they call choresh, which are stews, uh, greens. It's, and sometimes they take hours to cook and minutes to eat. Is that a saying? I just made that up right now. It just came to me as we are talking about it. Well, as the mom of two teenage boys, hours to cook and minutes to eat really resonates yes. with me. <laughs> and if we can slow it down a bit and then interject conversation within that part, then the meal gets extended accordingly. And it's, then it becomes an exchange and, and it's a way of connecting with others. Right. Okay, so I'm going to ask you afterwards to send me a recipe for one of your favorite dishes because uh, I'm going to try to cook it. 
All right. So now, um, tell me about what you're doing now. What I'm currently doing is that I really work one-on-one -on -one with those who work one-to-many so they can lead and live with impact. And how I do that is really embracing a philosophy of life-work integration. Uh, they call it work-life balance. Fine. I'm really about life-work integration because life has to come before work. And then the integration of those two is really where the magic happens. And I'm speaking mostly through the lens of an entrepreneur, because that's been my, the experience, where the separation of the two is very difficult. And the embracing of the two can become more powerful. So give me an example of somebody you've worked with who was really failing at this and what they did to change to succeed at it. And you can change the name for confidentiality. Well, yeah. Uh, an executive that I was working with was having a very successful business and not such a successful home life. And the executive was very used to planning everything out and giving the marching orders and everybody was following them. Uh, when it came to home life and with a partner, that philosophy didn't exactly work because the partner was not feeling as included as they probably should have been. And then that would extend to uh, teenage children as well who were coming into their own self-discovery. And by working more closely together and using Clifton Strengths as a tool to open up the conversation and then encouraging the executive to have their partner and their children take Clifton Strengths and start having conversations around, hey, we're really good at this. How do we become great at it as a family? And then when the executives started to change their inner monologue of how they're always ruminating and going things through, taking things through <laughs> their head, right? and to make it into a conversation that connected, it, the family dynamics started to change. And that lifted everybody up, which made him a better executive and a better leader and a better father and a better husband. Did you work with him one-on-one -on -one or did you pull his family in at times? I work with him primarily one-on-one. -on -one. Occasionally I get invited to work with the family as well, which has happened on several occasions because I come in with an objective perspective. I don't have an agenda. I'm more, as they say, the guide by the side and to versus the person, that, you know, as they say, the sage on the stage. <laughs> I need to broadcast. I need to listen. And through listening, I'm able to better guide. That's really fascinating because what you're talking about is coaching business leaders, but you're also, you're starting with communication and really working on, I mean, it's close to being a therapist. It's, it may feel therapeutic. <laughs> I'm not uh -huh. qualified in, in to be a therapist. However, I'm learning that talking through things does feel good. And as long as it leads to an actionable item or a series of items, we're actually taking, taking our thoughts and turning them into actions, then, then that's when it really starts to, we start to become better versions of ourselves. Right, okay. And now, do you work with people all over the world? Now it's a lot easier. And the answer is yes. <laughs> <laughs> it used to require travel and this. I, and those were spectacular moments to have been afforded the opportunity to take the message in an airplane to a live audience. And now I'm able to do it with great technology, take that same message to a broader audience without having to travel, even though it's still important to me at a personal level. 
Mm -hmm. the, the notion of traveling is still important. Right, exactly. You can't try the food as easy. <laughs> you, yeah. you can't connect. You can't use your words of gratitude. Now, I know you've spoken all over the world. What are some of the countries where you've talked? Um, with my role that I had with EO, as prior to the leadership chair, I was the chair for the Global Growth Task Team. And as a team, we traveled to East and West Africa. We helped launch new chapters in Kenya and Tanzania bring other chapters in Nigeria. We were responsible for launching them in Brazil, Ecuador, uh, Peru, and, so, and also China as well. We helped launch new chapters and every one of those afforded an opportunity to, to connect with people from different cultures, different languages, and they were very special moments. So I traveled a lot, that's, that's a given uh, right. with, with the responsibilities that come with leadership. Uh, mm -hmm. and bringing to the world what I believe is a, it's an amazing organization that transforms the lives of leaders who then in turn transform the lives of their communities. Okay, so tell us more background about EO and how you got into to the global positions that you did. Because I'm sure a lot of our listeners don't know what EO is. Absolutely. EO, Entrepreneurs Organization, has been around for 30 plus years. And we are currently around 14,000 members, I believe in around 60 odd countries and close to 200 chapters. So we are multilingual, multicultural, and multipurposeful in terms of we serve our communities in vastly different ways. Uh, we meet internationally, regionally, and locally with groups, their special interests. Uh, it's similar to many other groups that are out there. What I really appreciate about EO is just the entrepreneurial mindset and being surrounded by peers who are cut from a similar cloth, yet may think completely differently about how to do what they do. And who typically joins EO? EO generally has a policy of, uh, you need to be doing at least a minimum of a million dollars in, in revenue per year, US dollars a year. And then once you join, the hope is that you serve. So all the work that I've been doing with EO is all volunteer. It's on my time and bringing our effort, energy, and expertise to help the organization grow. I started off as serving on the board, became chapter president, served at a regional capacity, and then a national capacity, and then in a global capacity. So they have what's called a path of leadership that should one choose to, there are many opportunities to expose oneself to, to personal growth uh, through, through stepping up as a leader. Okay, so in your global work, you've seen all kinds of entrepreneurs uh, from all over the world. What would you say are some similarities across cultures? What I'm finding through the lens of EO, that if there's passion and purpose and you can marry those two together, it becomes a very powerful equation uh, for support, for ideating, and for getting things done on a volunteer basis that really can shift the needle in the right direction for, for good. And that's and for the group of leaders within EO. Mm -hmm. And how do people take that out to their companies then? What I've learned is that we have a responsibility that if we're getting this great learning is how do we share it with others 
And there's a difference between sharing it and telling others what to do. And because EO is a group primarily of peers, we come from a place of experience. Sometimes when we go back to our companies, we come from a place of instructing. And there's a, there's a nuance there that I believe is important to have that awareness of. So people understand the reason why this is important. Did I answer the question? I know I went off on a little bit of a... Yeah, yeah, no, it's really, yeah, what I had asked was what's similar about entrepreneurs around the world and what I, you know, and going through the conversation, it sounds like EO is good at teaching how to do experience shares and leaders can take that back to their companies with their passion and purpose and really focus on the company and great things can happen. Exactly. And when great things happen in companies, what does that do for their communities? And how does the leader then take that experience that they've gotten from EO that they've used in their company and then apply it to their community? So it grows beyond them. So you worked with people, you said in Brazil and China, uh, India, a whole bunch of different places that you lifted, listed off. What was what was different about working with the entrepreneurs? I mean, there's got to be cultural and language differences across all the places. Those, those differences are there. Yes, so you're right. So the core is the same. We're coming from a place of passion and purpose of entrepreneurship. We want to grow ourselves, our businesses, our communities. Sometimes the we need greater awareness of our own linguistic, linguistic limitations. Things do get lost in translation and things do get lost in interpretation if it's not done properly because we make assumptions. And it's important to be able to have people that can help be ambassadors, if you will, from a linguistic or a cultural perspective that helps shed light on so we get out of our preconceived notions that well, the, this group is always like this, or they're seeing, looking at us and saying, oh yeah, that group is always like that. Because really the reality is in somewhere in the middle between the two. Of the expectation versus how people really are. And so yeah. how do you get, how do you navigate that? Or what have you seen with groups, global groups and EO and how they work together? How, how I experienced it was, for example, when I was doing the workshops that I was doing, the, the, y, the y Discovery workshops, we did them in Brazil and, and in China. Uh, I don't speak Portuguese and I don't speak Chinese. So we had interpreters there. And it forced us all to slow down a bit and to speak to each other instead of over each other, which sometimes we tend to do when we're excited and want to get our point across. And the proper use of language will help us to connect versus having to convince. Oh, that's so interesting. The proper use of language and speaking slower helps people actually connect. That's so fascinating because I've heard research about taking a bunch of executives in a room and starting out the minute, the, the meeting with five minutes of meditation, that that also slows everything down and people connect better and have better ideas. And so there's almost a part of the interpreter being there that can do the same thing. Exactly. And that, that creates awareness. I realized that a couple of times when I was speaking to a larger audience, 
It could have been nerves. It could have been anticipation. I was speaking too fast and I happened to catch the interpreter's eye and they're like, slow down a bit. And that was a signal to me that I have to slow down to give that space for the connection to be made. What else did you learn about working with an interpreter? In this case, they are your partner because they are representing your message. And it's important to meet with them ahead of time to have an overview of, hey, this is what I'm talking about, to, to tell them, if I'm talking too fast, let me know. And so having that, that understanding and that connection because they are the gateway to the audience. As the, as the audience is listening, they may not be fully understanding what you're saying. And what, what do you think is the biggest challenge with an interpreter? Oftentimes it's just be level of competency, maybe, and fluency oh. in the language. Otherwise, I don't really see a challenge. I, I believe they're, nece they're a necessity. They have been for the work that I've done. Right, right. I see. So you've got to have somebody good. Did you uh, run into any problems with competency or you had all? The ones that we did. And the way I could tell was the body language of the audience. Oh. That they were really getting it engage and engaged. Yeah. So the same way you'd read an audience as a speaker, even if you're speaking through an interpreter, you can, you're watching the audience for the same cues. Exactly. There's a little bit of a delay because the words are coming through a third party. And then when you see the head nods or the smiles or that, or, or if they're whipping out their digital devices, you know you're not connecting with them. And that happens too. <laughs> yes, that's certainly the case. And what, do you th what were the, some of the big striking differences that you saw in countries? I mean, from a human standpoint, there are none. We're the same. We're the same. Uh, if we're talking about food or pace of life, that's all part of the experience that I love to embrace. So I, I tend to look for where are we connected? Where are we most similar? The differences make it interesting because it's a point of exploration. I'm looking for the connection in, in the roles that I have. So you were talking, uh, well, in the introduction, I said that you have a special emphasis on the strength finder. And I think you talked about it with the family that you were working on. On some of these certifications that you have, can they pick up that similarity of, you know, we're all humans? Or is there cultural differences on how they they do some of these profiling that might give you a skewed response? Gallup has done an amazing job with their data. Uh, they have 24 million people who've taken their assessments, so they have a lot to draw from. And what I found interesting is that by most countries, they have been able to rank the full 34 talents based on each country. And so you can go to gallup.com and just look for data per country, strengths per country, and they'll pull up, I think a hundred countries or something like that, that they can draw from. Uh, so there are nuances. There are some cultures that are very high in command. There's other cultures that are very high in harmony, if you will. And that's just what makes this whole, uh, pat, this whole network so interesting is how we, how do we connect through our strengths? In addition to cultural nuances and, and all of that, 
how do I, we, we connect to our strengths? And I believe Gallup has it in 15, maybe 18 different languages that you can take the assessment in those languages. It's right on the upper right side of their uh, website. It tells you how many different languages you can take the assessment in. Okay, so I, I don't know if you wanna talk about, you took the assessment and what your strengths are and come up with a sample person who might have strengths that are very different than yours. And how do you find that commonality to work well together? What's interesting about Gallup, that one in 250,000 people will have the same top five as you in a different order. To have a person have the same top five of you in the same order is one in 33 million. So the wow. numbers are vastly different to our own sense of individualization of who we are as individuals and how that works best if you speak strengths to strengths is having the reports out there and just sharing here's what i'm good at here's what i'm not so good at and then finding complementary strengths within the other person so they can fill out the gaps that i might be naturally that i naturally don't have i just don't have the strength this other person does great how do we partner together if we're sharing a common objective how do we both play to our strengths and so where would you if you're working one-to-one -one with somebody who leads one to many how would you apply that strength finder in their leadership can you give me an example of somebody that you work with there absolutely for someone that is strong, I'll just take a random strength as relator, which really wants to help, just how to help people or developer. There's two of them as developer. I developers in my top five, and I like to invest in others. And I, those that are good, I want to make them great. Now, if I'm working with another leader like that, I'll use myself as an example to shine a light on something that you won't see. And I'll say, by the way, this is my blind spot. Do you happen to have the same blind spot? And the likelihood that they do is an eye opener. So sometimes my blind spot is an overcommitment to helping others at, at my own cost. Ah, uh, okay. So once you know that, which takes a lot of introspection and understanding, and I guess the test can help you figure that out, then you've got to set up boundaries or safeguards around your blind spot so that you can do what you do best. Exactly. And then from there, this is where a leader really needs to understand that being an island is a lonely place to be. And this is where group, peer groups help to open up conversations and discussions, uh, putting together a leadership team and having everyone on that team take their strengths finders and open up the conversation based on their strengths. And the leader needs to go first to say, here I am, this is me, what do you see? And having that opportunity to be authentic, to be vulnerable. I find uh, strengths finder is the science be behind the art of who we are. So you've got 34 talents, I think you said, Mm -hmm. in the strength finder there must be some that run across professions like if you're an entrepreneur you probably are more likely to have some tendencies whereas if you're 
an engineer that's worked for a large company for years. Can you categorize some of the more common ones that you see, or can you clump them together in any sort of way? Speaking from my own experience, uh, for example, our CFO had uh, been with us for 20 plus years at, at Artisan, uh, high on responsibility, uh, high on um, di uh, discipline, and the other three are relationship-based. So not high in strategic thinking, not high on influencing, but really wants to get the job done and get it done well. I've worked with other entrepreneurs and they're futurists and they're futurists and they're communication and they see the future and they talk about it all the time. They need others to get things done for them. So it's really about matching the strengths versus any one being um, better than the others. Uh, so, I think our roles also help us develop our strengths too, because of the, uh, because we've been doing it and practicing it. So a strength is different from a talent because we have the 34 talents and they become strengths when we invest time, effort, energy, and then it becomes strengths. So I'm a little all over the place in this de definition because we are all, all over the place. So there are no real defined buckets uh, in categories. You, you get a sense of who you are, through doing good work and realizing that, am I playing to my strengths with the work that I'm doing? Whatever that work may be. I am low on analytical. It's my number 34. I will not make a good controller, nor CPA. Mm -hmm. Even if I went to college and did my best to get a degree, I would still probably fail at that profession. And whether it's aptitude, strength, or talent, or whether just pure dislike because it's not who you are. Yeah. Right. What I've learned about myself is that if it feeds me, then my hunger continues. If it doesn't feed me, then it doesn't matter how hungry I am. I just probably won't go for that. Now, there's a bunch of other tests out there um, Myers-Briggs is the one that I usually think of. Can you do a comparison as to why you picked this one versus some of the other ones that are out there? There are a lot, and I've taken about 20, 25 different <laughs> ones, and they're all interesting. They all serve their purpose in that they are designed to help us be a little bit more introspective, shine a little light on the, the dark spots that we're not always aware of. Uh, for me, the reason I chose StrengthsFinder, it gave me the vocabulary that I needed to make what was prior to that invisible to make it visible. I could see myself when I, my number one is belief. So if I believe in something, I go all in. The blind spot to that is if I don't believe it and it's right here, I can't see it. You can see my hand right now. I can't see my hand. That, that's, that, that's the blind spot part. So I really appreciate the work that has gone into the definitions behind the words that Gallup has put together through their, through their strengths. Okay, so out of all the 20 to 25 of them that you took, the Gallup Strength Finder was the one that just resonated most with you that you'd be able to talk about and remember. Exactly, and it goes back to that, my number one being belief. So the, all the others are good, I just didn't believe in them in the way that I believed in strengths finders. So rightly or wrongly, I started disregarding the others 
they're there, they're good, they all do that for me and the work that I do. This is the one that I choose. To use an example of fencing, fencing has three weapons, foil, epee, and saber. Mm -hmm. I could have been average at all three or really good at one. So I chose to be good at one, which is foil. That's the weapon that I fence in. And it's probably the same philosophy now that I look at it that I applied to StrengthsFinder. Because they are all good tools. There are three great weapons. I'm just choosing one because that allows me to focus on what I want to become really great at versus good at, at the others. Okay. So coming in with something. So rather than being mediocre at all the tools, you wanted to be really good at one and you found the one that was really going to shine and get your message across. Exactly. As a tool that helps us connect, have conversations that connect, I see Gallup as the tool for me that works right. best. Right. And what's interesting about that is whether you travel internationally for the strength finder or for the foil, you found that they both work internationally, that they're going to get down into that human area. Exactly. Well said. Well said. Because one's in the arena of sports. It doesn't matter where you're from. It matters that you have the gear on and you're ready to go and go, to, go into, it's a combat sport, even though it doesn't have the same, you know, uh, it's not like it used to be <laughs> in terms of combat. It's, it's a game of electric touch. Now it's about connecting with the other person. Same thing with conversations. The objectives are different because I want to beat the other person. They want to beat me. And in business, I want to have a connection with the other person so we can co-create something great. Right, right. Okay. So, right, because we, when we had talked earlier too, you had talked about the sport being a great unifier across country and that business could do the same thing. So here we brought it back to that. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So you also mentioned um, something about mindset when we talked in preparation for this call. Can you talk to me more about mindset for people? And I'm sure in, in success, but since it is a global marketing call, I'd like to have you put it in, you know, how do you set a mindset for being successful globally? I've, I've learned three key phrases from my mentor and coach, Warren Rustand. And what I've learned from Warren Rustand are, are three things. It's the clarity of vi vision, certainty of intent, and the power of values. And if we're able to pull those three together, and then from there devise a plan, which we can act on, then good things can happen and big things, and big things can be moved, big mountains can be moved when those three come together. Okay, can you start with each one and, and dig a little deeper on that? Mm -hmm. So uh, clarity of vision is knowing where you wanna go. And for example, when I first started my coaching experience with Warren, uh, I was struggling in fencing. I wasn't winning or playing to the level that I believe I could. And he gave me a very clear plan. And the plan started with when are the national championships? And I said, on this date, he said, okay, put a, cal put a pin on that date or a marker on that date. And then from that point to today, backfill your calendar with all the qualifying tournaments, all the local tournaments, <laughs> all the lessons you have to have and fill up your calendar. So everything comes to 
a peak on that day, which is this case happened to be June 26th. And I said, okay. And I did that. And he said, I will be there on that day, wherever the nationals are. And I said, okay, <laughs> this is getting serious now. And I, one thing I've learned about and respect about Warren a lot, it, when he says it, so certainty of intent, when he said, I will be there on that day, he was there. We did the training. I was, this was in the over 50s. And the last couple of years, I hadn't even made the top 10. I was just, I was all over the place. That year, I made it to the gold medal bout. <laughs> and I was there. I'm in gold medal. I'm in a good position. I'm eight, losing 8-6. Eight, you're going up to 10 or if the clock runs out. So I'm losing 8-6. I get it to 8-7. There's five seconds to go. Couldn't close the deal. I ended up with silver. Hey, it was better than 17th. Yeah, really? Right? <laughs> yeah. And so that was that clarity of vision. Now, along the way, I had to have the certainty of intent that I have to do the work that's needed every single day to get me to this June 26th date. And then within that was the power of values, which are what are my non-negotiables? What do I value? Besides the um, being on the podium or trying to get on the podium today, why am I doing all this? What am I truly aiming for? And then along that way, a lot of things began to change. Uh, I did a TEDx talk in 26, the next year I did a TEDx talk, I think. My book came out two years after that. So the journey has con continued from the summer of 2012 to now, because I kept those practices in place over, over the years. So the certainty of intent was there and the power of values. Tell me more about the, the values. I mean, you said the, the why. That's always such a big thing with entrepreneurs. Why are you doing what you're doing? And you said you had a why besides the podium. The why, from this, there's a school of thought out of the nine whys, and it comes from the Why Institute. And my why from that is to contribute to the greater good. So I want to be part of something bigger than myself. That's my non-negotiable. What I do is to create clarity, which is why I love the work that I do, is when the CEO or the team I'm working with has their aha moment, that gives me energy because that feeds my belief that I'm contributing to something bigger than myself. And what brings it all together is how we do what we do. And for me, from the nine whys, my how is to make sense of the complicated. So I get a lot of energy from trying to solve problems. If I can make sense of something, I believe I can create clarity. And then I feel that I've helped something bigger than myself. So how did that apply to fencing? Because I completely get it with what you're doing now. Fencing is a couple ways. I represent my club, the Los Angeles International Fencing Center, LAIFC. So that's part of it. I'm an extension of my coach, Misha Itkin and Tarek. I have a couple of coaches, Hazabur Okawa. I have three coaches now that I think of it. So I'm representing them. And when I made it to the world, I got to represent the United States. And I went to, I've been to seven world championships mm -hmm. uh, to represent the U.S. So that is something bigger than myself. Okay. 
And that's contributing to the greater good is because exactly. if somebody's coaching you, you want to do the best that you can do because it's the greater good, the great, the, the, for your club, for the U S. Yeah. Yeah. So that's how I felt that fencing for me was part as a intrinsic part and interwoven part of my journey is the sport. So can you apply that to other world athletes? I mean, there's so much focus on the Olympic athlete wanting to get a gold and being so disappointed in the silver and getting the bronze, you know, they're next most happy for because if they had gotten fourth, they wouldn't have been in there. So there's so much psychological around that. But, mm -hmm. you know, talking about it, get, there's got to be more than just getting to the podium, get the gold. Like they've got to have a personal mission that you just talked about. Do you think athletes that perform at that level are in touch with it? That's, that's a good question. I, I, I believe the athletes that are in touch with that realize that there's more to come afterwards. Those that may feel that it's all or nothing and don't reach that may not rebound as quickly and have a harder time coming back into whatever their next role in life is going to be. So it goes back to what you said earlier. It goes back to mindset and, and how well prepared one's mind is for, because there's only one person that gets the gold medal around their neck. Right. And if I'm fourth, am I a failure? Well, maybe on that day I didn't have it. And what's waiting for me next could be even more importantly, if I know my why, how, and what, and my mindset is of that nature. It's not the end, it's the beginning of something different. It's the end of that moment in time. Where am I going forward now? Okay, so you took that and you contributed, you got the, I mean, you competed and you got the silver on it. And then the next year you did a TEDx and then you did a book. What's the name of your book? <laughs> the book is called On Guard and On Point. And it's about mastering the duel between life and work. And what I do is I use fencing as a metaphor for how we handle life under pressure. Oh, that's fantastic. That's perfect for entrepreneurs and yeah. business executives, particularly if they have, yeah, yeah, you wouldn't even have to understand fencing. I'm sure you explain that because that's how you tie it together. Exactly. That's how I tie it together. And it's just really because it's about making the invisible visible. And when you have a picture of somebody doing that on the podium, we can envision a person standing on a podium. We can envision a person losing in their body language. We can envision a coach and a student. So we can see all of those and we all need coaches in our lives. The best, the greatest athletes have the best coaches. Same thing with the best business people, the business minds. They all have coaches. They've realized that trying to figure out everything on oneself is exhausting and depletive and not necessarily energizing. And when you can share that with a professional or a mentor, uh, that opens things up or a peer group that opens the one's mind exponentially. Right. Yeah, it definitely does. I had heard research with a women's group that I was in, Count Me In, and they did an analysis of all the women owned businesses that were part of this group that made it to a million dollars or more. And they said it didn't matter education, experience, industry, training, um, you know, family upbringing, none of that mattered. The only common denominator was is that the, those women had a coach. 
And so I've, I've always found that fascinating. I'm curious, you're as an entrepreneur, how would you define your, your mindset? What, what comes to you as an entrepreneur? How, how do you define your mindset? <clears throat> well, I can answer my why easier than I can. I mean, mindset's a, a wide open question. But in your framework, you're asking about the why, the how, and the what? Yes, in this framework, exactly. Yeah. Okay. So my why is connecting people. Mm -hmm. I mean, I had a business years ago, and it was connecting doctors, ex expert witnesses to lawyers, and my logo was a handshake. Um, now I'm connect pe connecting people across languages and cultures, and my logo is an abstract <laughs> helping hands, you know, hands connecting. I never put that together that my first was a handshake and the second thing is hands together, which is appropriate because my book that comes out in about a month has multicolored hands on it. It's the language of global marketing. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So my how is by providing um, language translation interpretation services. Mm -hmm. Is that the how or is that the what? Uh, if you, what you do is connect people. Why? Because you like to bring people together. And then how you do it would be through language services. Yes. Yes. That could be the way of, yes. Yes. And that's, and if I think about what motivates me, I mean, I talk about it in my book, is, is that when I was young, I lived in Taiwan, mm -hmm. didn't speak any Mandarin, and I can remember it being in a small village where we lived. My dad was in international agriculture. Mm -hmm. uh, people were fascinated by our blonde hair because they hadn't mm -hmm. seen it, so they'd want to come over and touch, and we didn't know the language, but you could smile and you could not feel threatened by body language and communicating. But being able to share a language, you can connect so much more. So that's an early childhood passion. And then, you know, I was on call one weekend along with marketing translation. We also provide uh, interpreters to hospitals. Mm -hmm. And there was a woman there giving a birth who didn't speak English. And so they called us up to get an interpreter over there immediately. And I dropped everything I was doing, even though it was on the weekend, because I was like, oh, my gosh, I can't imagine being in a hospital, mm -hmm. giving birth and not knowing what's going on. So, you know, that that's where my passion comes in. Um, and I also think that for people who are afraid in the United States of doing global business, the opportunity is huge. And that message that you said at the beginning is people are people, they're all human. Just, you know, some of the things on the side are very different. But if you can figure out a way to work through that, it's important. So you're the first person on this podcast that's got me talking so much. This is about you. <laughs> no, no, it's, it's, actually, it's about us. That's how I look at it. And you brought up a very good observation that it, it's here in the States, if we're seeking all around the world, they covet American goods. I understand that we spend a lot of time importing. However, there's a, there's a broad global audience that can't wait to get their hands on American goods, in particular from the smaller, the smaller artisanal businesses, if you will. I believe there's a huge opportunity there. If they're getting unique pieces of work from the U.S. that no one else in their community has, it's, it's probably something that they would love to show off and share. So I agree with you. There's a huge opportunity for us as Americans to be able to export 
what we have, in addition to our knowledge and our culture, what are products that we can start sending out to other parts of the world? Right. So it is products, a lot of um, food manufacturers and gifts and creative things. Those are huge, plus the, all the manufacturing. And then you look at all the services that can be sold internationally. I mean, software as a service, SaaS businesses are a prime example. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So what have you seen as you've traveled about other countries wanting U.S. goods? I, for me, when, when the good when the goods are of a caliber that, that warrants sort of the made in USA label, there's, there's, great, there's great pride. Uh, you still look at Levi's at the simplest ways or Wrangler or Lee jeans. They're still, understand that they're made overseas. They're still that, they're capturing a little bit of Americana. So imagine if something that's truly made here then gets to be exported. What does that mean? I think we have more work to do in that arena. We haven't found out enough about that. We're just scratching on the surface. So I can't really speak to having seen that much overall yet because there's more to come. Yeah, less than 1% of US companies actually export and 98% of them really? are small and mid-sized businesses. Wow. And there's so again, grants potential. available. Yeah. There's potential there. And uh, sometimes it's because of lack of awareness or we're very happy just selling to our friends and neighbors. Well, what could we do if we opened up that, that world? What could that look like? Right, right. And I think EO's done a fabulous job of just exemplifying that because when, from when they started and how big they are internationally now, I mean, that's huge and they've captured that market. Yeah, um, um, EO is the outgrowth of eight or 10 college students who came out of the Association for College Entrepreneurs in the 80s. And now it's a global organization of 14,000 plus members around the world. It's an American idea. It's eight to 10 college students that created this organization. I had no idea. That's fascinating to hear. One of our best exports, if you ask me. <laughs> yes, it sure is. Huh. Yeah, so any college students listening to this, think about what you could build right now of connecting people that you could then take internationally. And what do you, I've never, I joined as the world shut down, so mm -hmm. I've never been to one of the international conferences. Are they, I, I mean, they can't be all in English because you've got people coming in from all over the world for the global leadership conferences. How do they handle language there? We've we went to one of these one of these universities in osaka a few years ago and they had the interpreters there they had the booths there they had all the, they had primarily were the translators were english and chinese because a lot of the a lot of the se sessions were in japanese and which was great because then we really get to immerse ourselves in the mindset of the japanese entrepreneur of the japanese executive of the japanese artist and architect uh, we really got to see it through their words and through the interpretation. So that and the style of conference, the kind of information that they were presenting. Oh, mm -hmm. that's fantastic. I'm so glad. So it wasn't that EO said we're going to expand internationally, but you have to do it in English and do it the American way. They've really done a good job of bringing in all the different cultures. Absolutely, and we've had the good fortune of experiencing these universities in, 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 in Nepal. Uh, 
in Kenya, in, in South Africa, in so many places in Brazil. Rio had an amazing one a few years ago. We even brought 80 entrepreneurs and spouses together to a global expedition in Bhutan. And we did one in Bhutan for four or five days. I was the co-chair for that event. And it was an incredible experience to spend a week in Bhutan, uh, bringing the, the mindset of the entrepreneur to the Bhutanese. Ah, that's crazy exciting. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> the places you've been able to go. Well, I do want to jump over to some, you know, more personal about you. Um, and you know this question's coming. What's your favorite foreign word? Uh, favorite foreign word? It's merci, which is French for thank you. And the Iranians use it as well. Oh. Uh, the, that's so for me, pretty much everyone understands that word. Or you can say it in Arabic and shukran and sheshe. It's, it's any word that says thank you. And that goes back to your whole great gratefulness or gratitude yeah. words. I, I didn't even think of that. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. No, I started a gratitude practice the November before we shut down for, uh, you know, quarantine. Mm -hmm. And it's just made such a difference in how I've pro I have gone through this whole shutdown, you know, not being able to go out. But if I look for all the things that I'm grateful for and saying, Merci every day. Yeah, <laughs> it's, yeah. it, it makes a big difference. It, it does. Yeah. How about a um, your best vacation you ever went on? It was for me. There needs to be something attached to it. Uh, the best vacation I went on was to go on a. My sister, younger sister, is a black and white photographer, really good artist, and she had already always had this dream of doing a artistic photo, photo, photographic session in Zimbabwe. So we went to the great ruins of Zimbabwe. Uh, this was 2015 or 2016, I can't remember. And to be sharing that moment with her was probably one of the best vacations. And close second to that was with uh, my two brothers and my sister, the four of us were in a car in New Zealand for a week. This was 2012. And we just drove around New Zealand together. And for the first time in our lives, we'd taken a trip together like that. And we hiked Fox Glacier and we saw just amazing things together. So that was sharing a vacation is what really make for me makes it a vacation, sharing the experience. Right, right. That's uh, so fantastic. I don't know if you were on the call with uh, Dr. Deepak Chopra um, yes. when he did the talk for EO, yeah, and that was what was so striking to me is happiness is so much about doing things with other people. Absolutely, absolutely. And what he talked about on his talk was strengths and the data that he was sharing on one of his slides was all Gallup data. Oh, engagement. interesting. Yep, yep, that was very interesting to see the chart that said Gallup data on, on the bottom right hand side of the screen share. So. Gallup is really onto something here because they are more than an assessment. I believe Clifton Strengths is more of a movement and is really pushing people through the science of positive psychology, which is why it was started to begin with by Don Clifton. 
What was, what slide were you talking about that he talked about strains? If you remember the dark background and it had sort of a person in the center and had all the different colors and all the different aspects of one's life. If you look at the upper right hand side, that's about the percentage of disengaged individuals in the workforce when they don't know their strengths or the boss doesn't listen to them or doesn't feel connected. Those percentages are massive in this country when it comes to work disengaged workforce. I do remember that. So it was talking about really knowing what your strengths, knowing what your employee strengths are, and then focusing on that. You can have less than 1% of disengaged employees, where if you don't do that, you could have close to half your workforce disengaged. Exactly. Exactly. Because if people don't feel a connection, they don't feel they're cared, for and they feel invisible and there's nothing worse than feeling invisible in the presence of a leader right yes i hadn't put that together that he had talked about that so because he talked about so many good things that made sense but that that leads directly back to what you do and specialize in or are passionate about about people's strengths yeah mm -hmm. i'm glad we talked about that how about your most rewarding or kind of shocking cross-cultural experience? I'm thinking about that one. Uh, I think the most rewarding one that we had just was actually, there's been many, so I guess the tendency is to remember the most recent. Uh, it was before the World Championships in Cairo, uh, parents and I, my wife and my sister, we rented a boat for a week-long Nile cruise. And we were the only ones because tourism was way down. This is fall of 2019, before the pandemic. So we had the whole boat to ourselves with a large crew. And what, we, what was the most surprising is our guide is an Egyptologist and was a candidate to make the Egyptian wrestling team for the Olympics. But he had torn his knee. He's my age now, so he was in his late 50s. And that bond of sport was amazing and how it we connected through the language of sport and what was really interesting for him is when he was speaking about history he was speaking about history through the lens of the egyptians and it sort of started with alexander the great from his perspective my father who's iranian who knows a lot about persian history said, wait a minute, why are you starting to tell us a story with about Alexander the Great when the Persians were there several hundred years before? <laughs> and the look on his face was like, okay, I have a serious audience here and my mother is very into, into that. So the bond from a deep, for, for history that took place 3,000, 5,000 years ago of people interacting brought it to the present day. And that was a very special aha moment because the guy doesn't know who he's getting, right? He's just these people that are coming in. And he was concerned because both of our parents are in their 80s, that would they be able to keep up? So he was very concerned. And knowing, seeing the energy that my parents had, because they were rediscovering something brand new and it energized them. So that human connection was very powerful in the moment, just in our little tiny group, walking around the pyramids, walking around Luxor. Oh, that's fantastic. That is absolutely fantastic. And so, yeah, you're, and you're so right that when somebody is a guide like that, they don't know 
who they're going to get and so how can they quickly adjust to it and what language were you all speaking uh, all, all speaking English. Uh, he spoke a little bit of French. My mother is fluent in five languages. Uh, so she can, and she's from North Dakota, by the way. So she only spoke English up to the age of 20. And all these other languages she learned from college onwards. That's highly unusual. She's a quite a remarkable woman. <laughs> I would say that. What other languages does she speak? Uh, she's fluent in Farsi because she lived in Iran for 18 years. She's fluent in French, Spanish, and German and English. So that's four or five. I lost track. I think that's five. That's five. Yeah. English, Farsi, French, Spanish, and German. So where did she learn her Spanish and German? Uh, she lived in Mexico. She lived in Mexico for a year in while she was a student in North Dakota, she got a Fulbright scholarship to study French in Paris. Uh, German was living in Switzerland. Uh, we ended up in Switzerland, and she said, well, if I'm going to be part of the culture, I'm going to need to learn the language. So she didn't learn Swiss German. She learned Hochdeutsch. She learned High German because she thought that would be more practical throughout that whole area. And she, even in her 70s, was teaching French to Spanish-speaking kids. Wow. Spanish. She, she's highly unusual Yes, yeah. to, to be able to speak like that. Well, hats off to her. Now I see why she's got such a great son. I mean, you're very insightful. Well, thank you. It's, it's the gift the parents have given us, plus the gift of travel and EO and all of that. It's all, it all comes together. Right. It really, that is the best gift that parents can give their children is to, to travel to countries outside the United States to, to remind you how humans are all very similar. So do you have any final recommendations for listeners? I, the most important thing that I've learned are two things is travel physically and then travel through books, travel through your mind, read as much as you can. A podcasts are helpful in that, in that regard as well. So open, open up the mind. As, in as many ways as you can. And languages are a huge doorway. Thank you. That's great advice. And where can people find you if they want to get in touch with you? I'm on LinkedIn, just uh, LinkedIn, Jamie Duraghi. There, Twitter is at jduraghi. And my website is lifeworkintegration.com. And why don't you go ahead and spell your name so people know how to find you? Jamie is J-A-M-I-E. And Duraghi is D. O-U-R-A-G-H-Y. Well, Jamie, thank you so much for being here today. The whole global leadership and how to recognize your strengths and how to work across cultures is so fascinating to me. And I think if people understand themselves, they can understand others better and be successful. So thank you. Thank you, Wendy, and thank you for asking the good questions that really got me to open up. I, I truly appreciate that. Oh, thank you. Yeah, I enjoyed hearing. So listeners, thank you so much for listening, too. And I realize I have not been asking enough for people to go into the podcast and give it a five-star rating. Um, it would really help us out to find more good listeners and good guests. So if you could do that today, I'd be eternally grateful. So we'll talk to you next time. Bye-bye, listeners. 
that's a wrap for this session. A big thanks to you for listening to the Global Marketing Show. Hope you had just as much fun as I did. New sessions launch weekly on all places you find podcasts, Apple, Spotify, Google Play, and of course on our website. If you know someone interested in this topic, please tell them about us. Au revoir for now.